at every turn of our lives. Let me open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word that reveals how our thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways like ours. Instead, you have ordered all things in creation to bring you soul glory, for only you are glorious. There is no greater display of glory than the grace and mercy you have poured out on us through the work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to redeem a fallen creation, and to justify a people to be his bride for your eternal kingdom of love. I pray for your spirit to move among us now that your servant would speak accurately your words of encouragement to strengthen our faith. And in the moments ahead, Father, show us Christ and give us confidence in him. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. In a recent seminary class, the professor taught that humans are able to make free will choices that are not determined by our nature specifically, nor are they coerced by God in any way by his predetermination. It's claimed that humans possess free will for God to rightly hold us morally responsible for our actions. And this view is called libertarian free will. Libertarian free will. A second view is that God's sovereignty working through his providence is compatible with voluntarily made human choices. Our choices are not coerced. We are not forced to choose contrary to our desires. Yet our choices cannot override God's sovereign control of his creation. What God has determined will always come to pass. And in a way that is compatible with our freely made human choices. This view is called compatibilism. Compatibilism. Now, students are required to discuss the lectures in the online classroom at my seminary, so I posted my disagreement with libertarian free will. The professor had said the Bible is about choices, and that's true. God does offer choices. However, when Adam created, when Adam was first created, he had the ability to obey or disobey God. And in the garden, when he made the tragic choice to disobey God, his ability to not sin was lost. That's the real tragedy of the fall. As I am often quoted as saying, Steve likes this, we, never must, we must never underestimate the impact of the fall. It changed everything, including human nature. When Adam sinned, he lost the ability to choose equally between sinning and non-sinning, and he lost the ability to choose to not sin. And that is what we see in, is why people in their fallen nature prefer sin. But God, 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us in Jesus Christ, he provides redemption as he chooses. And although the Bible doesn't fully explain how, we see throughout the pages of Scripture that freely made human choices, even sinful ones, always work in harmony with God's predetermined will and plan. Now, comments by some of the other students argued against this idea of biblical compatibilism because our choices feel freely made, and any challenge to human free will is resisted by human philosophy. But God has revealed that he is always in the background orchestrating all things to bring about his will and his promises for his good purposes. If he wasn't, we couldn't trust his promise. So to present the case for biblical compatibilism, I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. I've titled this message, The Deceiver Deceived. It's a story of Jacob, and as his life story continues to unfold, we're going to look at the events here that uh, have quite an ironic twist throughout. So please stand, if you're able, for the reading of a portion of our text I'm going to begin in verse 10. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near. He rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? And in verse 18, it says Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. May God bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Please be seated. Now, the one big idea I want to draw out of this text in Genesis 29 is on the top of your handout, and it's, it's this. God has predetermined all human choices to serve his plan to redeem and glorify his fallen creation. We'll look at Genesis 29 through three character studies. First, Jacob, the competitor. Second, Laban, the conniver. And finally, God, the compassionate who is guiding the actions to everyone by his providence in this account. So let me set the stage for these events in our text. We have read how Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys, Esau, the older, and Jacob, the younger. 
They were always at odds for their parents' affections because Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah preferred Jacob. After taking early advantage of Esau, stealing his birthright by Esau's account, Jacob later deceives his father with his mother Rebekah's help into giving him the blessing that Isaac wanted for Esau. And we saw how it was God's plan that Jacob would get the blessing. So in time and space, Esau is, Isaac is confused by Jacob and Rebekah's ruse. Esau, thinking he has lost the blessing, is enraged. And when Rebekah hears his vow to kill Jacob, she urges Jacob to flee to her brother in Haran about a month's journey to the north. Jacob runs. And at the end of that first long day, we saw two weeks ago, the exhausted Jacob falls asleep and he dreams of a stairway between heaven and earth. And it's filled with angels ascending and descending the stairway. And at the top and standing beside Jacob is God. He repeats the promise that God made to Abraham. Now Jacob would have countless offspring a great name, protection wherever he goes, and that a blessing would come to all the peoples or the families of the earth through Jacob. Jacob's response is described back in Genesis 28, 16 through 17. Let me read that. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, the place was Bethel, and as his grandfather Abraham had done when he first arrived in Canaan, so almost more than 100 years earlier, Jacob, too, builds an altar, and he worships. If we look back on Jacob's life, I believe that while God had foreknown and predestined Jacob to call him to faith, it was at Bethel that Jacob hears the call and is finally truly saved. His life now is changed. We have been calling him Mr. Competitive, but after the dream at Bethel, his competitive nature is changed from destructive to constructive, from trusting his wits to trusting God. Now, in these opening verses of chapter 29, they describe his arrival at a well that is sealed with a heavy stone. Three, uh, three flocks of sheep are there, and some shepherds are there, and Jacob asks where they're from. Haran, they say. Oh, do you know Laban, son of Nahor, Jacob says. We do, they reply. Is he well? Yes, he is well. And here comes his daughter Rachel with some of his sheep, even now. Gold bricking is a term that describes the trick used to put a thin film of gold over a cheap hunk of metal to deceive a potential buyer. It became a popular term in the U.S. military for soldiers uh, who try to avoid work. Now, in verse 7, Jacob calls these shepherds 
gold brickers. He says, behold, it's still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. And this is true because normally the sheep are not folded and watered until the end of the day. So these shepherds have brought the sheep to the well at midday to gold brick. They're done for the day. They're going to sit around and chat while they wait for other shepherds to come. So he calls them out. Jacob tells them, go back to work. But the shepherds have an excuse. They need to wait, they say, for help to move the heavy stone. But at this point, the conversation is interrupted by Rachel coming with a flock of Laban's sheep. She's described as a shepherdess to show that she's unmarried. Verse 10 gives us the first hint of the change in Jacob's character. In contrast to the shepherds saying, we cannot, we need to wait, Jacob single-handedly walks over, moves the heavy stone, and waters the sheep. There are two similar well-side encounters in the Bible that invite comparison with Jacob's actions here. Recall Back in Genesis 24, Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to find a wife for Isaac so that Isaac would have a wife from Abraham's people, not from the surrounding Canaanites as God had forbidden. And the servant travels to Haran. He shows his piety and his trust as he prays that God would provide a proper wife for Isaac. And his prayer, you recall, was answered when Rebekah arrived at the well where the man was, and he watered his camels and agreed to go and marry Isaac, and ultimately she would give birth to Esau and Jacob, just as God had planned. Now at another well in the Midian desert, many years later, as Moses flees from Pharaoh for defending a fellow Israelite, he protects the daughters and waters the sheep of a local tribal leader named Ruel. For his service and his protection for those daughters, Moses receives a home, a wife, and ultimately will have an encounter with God in a burning bush that will equip Moses to go back to Egypt and lead God's people out of slavery, just as God had planned. 500 years earlier than Moses and that well in Midian and those daughters of Riel is this well-side encounter with Jacob and Rachel. And Jacob puts his competitive, uh, his competitive nature that he had used against his brother Esau, now he puts it to work in the service of other people. He removes the stone, he waters the sheep. Rachel then runs home and tells her father what happened. Look at the result in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Jacob, Jacob's act of service, using his competitive nature to serve others, has now given him a welcome by his distant relatives who he was looking for. They can give him safety. 
in a hostile world. And that's what God promised him at Bethel at the one, uh, within that promise. And now Jacob has the opportunity not just to survive. So remember, it's tough in the ancient world. Now he has the opportunity to thrive. And only his encounter with God can explain his change of character. Let's make this our first fill-in. Only God can change a heart centered on loving self to one centered on loving him and serving others. Only God can change a heart in that way. And this is a radical truth that Jesus shared with Nicodemus that God must bring dead hearts to new life if people are to even see the kingdom of God, much less believe, is what Jesus told Nicodemus. Later, Jesus would tell his accusers that they did not believe because they were not his sheep. That means that belief wouldn't make them Jesus' sheep. One must be a sheep to believe and to follow the good shepherd. John 26. And this is the truth that the Bible presents. This is the truth we learned in Sunday school this morning with the prodigal son and the elder brother. The prodigal son did not come to himself by himself. He only came to himself and returned to the father because it was the father who changed him to realize that he needed to come to himself and return to the father. Only God can change a heart centered on loving self to one centered on loving him and serving others. Now, after that night at Bethel, Jacob, the deceiver, becomes Jacob, the achiever, putting his competitive energy to work, serving others. God changed his heart, which changed his choices, and profoundly changed his life. This kind of change is an essential marker of saving faith. Later, Paul will call this fruit. If there is no fruit, there is no change, therefore no saving faith. True faith always brings a growing awareness of our selfishness and a growing desire to serve others instead of ourselves. And I hope that you have felt that in your life. Now, Rachel's good news she shares with her father, and that brings us to Laban. Let's call him Mr. Conniver. Rachel's news is not the real reason for Laban's joy in hearing of Jacob's arrival. Instead, it's Laban's memory of Abraham's servant Eliezer when he had come to Haran 20, 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier. And at that time, when he met Rebecca, uh, Rebecca at the well, he gave her a gold ring he gave her gold bracelets such that they almost weighed down her arms. 
And she ran home, and Genesis 24, 29 says this. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man, that'd be Eliezer, and as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he said, Oh, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the candle. Oh, what magnanimity of, of, of Laban. Now he says almost the same thing to Jacob because he sees the potential for material gain. This young man is strong. He's motivated. He's willing to serve. He calls out gold brickers. And he's from a rich family. What more could Laban want? Now, we're told that Laban has two daughters. Leah is older, and she's described as having weak eyes. Now, that may be uh, a statement about her vision. It could be uh, an indication of the color. It might not have been as desirable. Or it could be that she didn't have the sparkle in her eyes that was very desirable uh, in ancient times. So she has weak eyes. Rachel, we're told, is beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loves her. Look again at verse 15 and following. So Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Laban offers Jacob a job and asks him to set the price. And Jacob sets a, a fairly generous offer. If you do the math, it's a, it's a pretty good bride price that he's offering. He'll serve Laban for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand. And Laban agrees. And for Jacob, the seven years, it says, seem like just a few days. They pass by so quickly. And when the time is complete, Laban seems to have forgotten the deal. So Jacob reminds him. He says he asked for his wife. And for the anticipated marriage, Laban then holds a big wedding feast, invites all of the neighbors, kills the fatted calf, brings out the best wine. But verse 23 holds a surprise. Look there with me. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob went into her. Ironically, the deceiver is now deceived. If you read carefully through the account, at no time does Laban specify which daughter he's giving to Jacob. The old saying, never what? Assume for a couple of different reasons. Verse 24, Laban, it says that Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to Leah to be her servant. That's a reference to the custom of the father giving a dowry for his daughter. And the dowry could be money or clothes or servants. 
But we see Laban's character and his cheapness and his conniving and his greed in giving his daughter for a dowry just one servant. So with seven years of Jacob's labor and a dowry of one servant, Laban's made good money on the weak-eyed Leah. Now the center of the story comes in verse 25. Jacob thinks he's entering the wedding night with his true love, Rachel. But verse 25 says, In the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What have you done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban offers a weak excuse. Well, it's not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, irony just grips out of this text here. Because just as the older Esau stood between Jacob and the blessing that Jacob wanted, now the older Leah stands between Jacob and the true love he wanted. Jacob the deceiver is deceived in the same way. It was a bait-and-switch trick, the very one he had used to deceive his father. Because Jacob had pretended to be Esau, and it worked. Because Genesis 27 says that Isaac was blind, and Jacob had brought him bread and wine. Now, Jacob is deceived in the very same way. He's blind in the dark, and he's dulled by the wine of the feast. Only God could come up with a twist like this. And now the true character of Laban the conniver is revealed in verse 27. He says, complete the marriage week with Leah, and I'll give you Rachel if you serve another seven years. What Laban is saying here is that Jacob can have Rachel at the end of the seven-day marriage week with Leah. He doesn't have to wait seven years. He's going to get Rachel right away. Now, Jacob's stuck. There's nothing he can really do except complete that week with Leah. But can you imagine how interesting that week must have been? What a honeymoon sweet argument must have happened there. As Jacob is waiting not for Leah, but for Rachel. And Leah is dreading the arrival of her sister into the relationship. Laban keeps his word, though, and he gives Rachel to Jacob. But again, he's stingy, giving Rachel the same cheap dowry. And then in verse 30, we read that, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. Now, the tragedy in Laban's conniving greed is to use his daughter for his own gain. His self-centered actions damaged them, betrayed Jacob, probably ruined Laban's already questionable reputation, and it will result in Jacob's dysfunctional family for generations to come.
Well, Laban's deception brings us then to our next fill-in. Self-centered actions dishonor God, hurt others, and brings shame. Other-centered actions honor God, helps others, and brings reward. When we're other-centered, it honors God, helps others, and brings reward. In contrast to the first seven years, the next seven years for Jacob will not fly by like a few days. Instead, there will be long and difficult years with Leah and Rachel locked in competition for Jacob's approval. Jacob and Laban will constantly battle over the business and resources. And Laban's conniving will bring him wealth for a time, but eventually the man he deceived will deceive him and exact his revenge, as we'll see going forward in our Genesis study. And ultimately, everyone will lose something because self-centeredness damages us and everyone around us. Jacob's actions are our guide. We are to use our gifts to serve others. But strangely, when we fail to do that, all things ultimately work together to advance God's plan of using broken people for his ultimate purpose of redemption. Which brings us to the third character study, that of God the Compassionate. Look with me at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. John Chrysostom, the 4th century bishop of Constantinople, comments on this verse by inviting us, he says, to see God's wisdom and compassion. Where one woman attracted her husband's affections by her beauty, the other is rejected because she lacked it. But it was to Leah that God gave children and left Rachel barren to show his love and compassion that one might have some comfort from her children and the other might not triumph over her sister because of her charm and beauty. God, the compassionate, has compassion on the one who has been rejected by man. And Leah responds to God's compassion in how she names her children. Reuben's name means God has seen her affliction. Simeon means God knows her sorrow. Levi's name recognizes God's blessing of children for her husband. And her fourth son she names Judah, saying, Now I will praise the Lord. Jacob would not have married Leah if Laban hadn't deceived him. 
but it's clear that Laban's actions, uncoerced choices they were, fit perfectly with how God was fulfilling his promise to Jacob to continue the line of blessing. Moses's great Moses Israel's great prophet and Aaron their first priest are descended from Levi Leah's second son her fourth son Judah is the father of Israel's great kings and ultimately from the daughter who was unwanted by men God chose Leah to be the maternal ancestor of the final perfect prophet, priest, and king because from Leah would come Jesus, the Lion of Judah and the Savior of the world. Here's our last fill-in then. People freely choose what they desire. And those choices always serve God's unchanging plan. We freely choose what we desire in our nature. And remember, in the Garden of Eden, Adam lost his and our ability to choose not to sin. So we choose what we desire, and those choices always serve God's unchanging plan. It's helpful to look at God's will in three categories. Three categories. There's one will of God, but three categories can be broken out. His decree of will is his will that was made in eternity past. It is his secret will. We don't know all of his decree of will. We know parts of it. It's unchanging. His decretive will is seen in his promise to Eve when in Genesis 3.15 he promises to put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve and that one day the offspring of the serpent may wound the head of the offspring of Eve but the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. That's God's decretive will spoken out by him. We see his decree of will in his elective process. Romans 8, 29, those that God foreknew in his decree of will, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified by his decreed of will. There's a second aspect of God's will. It's his prescriptive will. That's the moral law. God has said, you will have no other gods before me. God has said, you will honor your mother and your father that your days may be long on earth. God had said that you will not commit adultery. You will not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's speedboat. That's his prescriptive will. God's decreed of will is never broken. It is never changing. God's prescriptive will is always broken, constantly. And it's even changed by the, the, the uh, scribes and Pharisees in Israel adding another 600 additional requirements to God's prescriptive law. It's his moral law. 
That's the second category. The third is his permissive will. This is a one that can be most confusing to us. His per- permissive will is that God allows his prescriptive will to be broken, and in the course of all of that, somehow manages to continue to move forward with his decretive will to his ultimate purpose to bring salvation to those he has chosen and wrote their names in the book of life in eternity past. His permissive will is what we see in action And it's his permissive will that stands in compatibility with our freely made choices, even the bad ones, to accomplish God's will. His permissive will is seen wonderfully in Esther 4.14. Let me set the stage here. Mordecai has discovered, Mordecai the Jew has discovered in Susa, they're in exile, that there is a plan by Haman to kill all the Jews, and he's managed to get the king to sign off on it with the king's decree of will, which he can't change. Mordecai hears of this. He goes to Esther, who is the queen. And he says, you need to go into the king. And she says, Uncle Mordecai, I'm sorry. If, uh, if, if he gives me the thumbs down, it could be my life. This is what Mordecai says. For if you, Esther, keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for a time such as this. Isn't that wonderful? We see God's decretive will to place Esther right there. We see his prescriptive will. And we see his permissive will. And Esther's free choice which he knows is going to be to go to the king because he's placed her there for a time such as this. The Israelite readers of Genesis may have shaken their heads over the choices that they see their ancestors made, but they would also have been comforted. They would have been comforted through the difficult times in the conquest of the promised land to come after this, in the time of the judges, during the rise and fall of the great kings, and even in their exile. They would have understood that God had always preserved a remnant of his people despite all of the good and bad choices that they had made. And God wants us to be comforted in the same way. In ways we can't fully understand, God is always at work to bring about his perfect plan through every human choice, both good and bad. This is God's sovereignty. Christians are always quick to affirm that God is sovereign. But many Christians get confused by not understanding that the choices we make are also under God's sovereign control, even though they're freely made. And we don't understand fully how that is. So God wants us to be comforted by knowing that his sovereignty is always work at work in a compatible way with our free choices. It's called providence. Providence. John Piper describes providence this way. It's God's purposeful sovereignty that reaches down into every atom and up to the movement of the galaxies and into the heart of every human being. 
Its nature is wise and just and good. Its goal is the Christ-exalting glorification of God through the gladness of a redeemed people in a new world. That's what God's providence does. It's for our joy and our gladness and our confidence in His promises so that we will be those the, the gladness of a redeemed people in a new world. prime example is found in Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit promised to be poured out by God through Joel was indeed poured out on Peter and the other believers. And Peter stood and he said to the gathered crowd these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Good Friday was God's predetermined plan for Jesus. That's what Jesus in Hebrews 12 is said to have with joy faced the cross because he knew in his deity exactly who he was saving. And he knew that his death for them would be efficacious. It wouldn't come down to you or I choosing whether or not we would accept Christ. Why would he have any joy in facing the cross if that ambiguity was before him? But it wasn't. We come to ourselves not because we came to ourselves ourselves, but because God brings us to him. The resurrection of Jesus meant the death of death, and it fulfilled the promise made to Eve in the Garden of Eden. The definite plan of God was for God the Son to assume our humanity with his deity, never commingled in a way we don't understand, to earn complete righteousness as the last Adam, to fulfill where the first Adam failed, and to take the wrath that we deserve for sin. The greatest evil of all time was a human choice to put the Son of God on a cross and kill him. But the greatest comfort of all time is by knowing that he can and will bring about his absolute promises, and we can trust that. It's also the greatest mystery of all time as to how God does this. And the Bible doesn't resolve this tension that exists between our freely made choices and God's sovereign plan. But somehow they have, to, they have to coexist. And the best we can do is to come up with the idea that, yes, we make free moral choices for which we are morally responsible for God, yet God is in control in the background at all times, and they work together in harmony, in compatibility. It's called, what it's called again? Compatibilism, big word, but now you know it. 
It's a common teaching that humans must have free will. That's where the professor was going in the seminary class. And the, the reason that it's commonly taught is that it's, it's, it's thought that to be morally responsible for our choices, we must make them freely, uncoerced in any way, not even by our fallen nature. And we've been told that without libertarian free will, we would only be robots under the authoritarian rule of a deterministic God. But that's not the reality the Bible presents. The Bible presents one in which a compassionate God with infinite power can allow us the freedom of our choices and achieve his predetermined plan to call, justify, and glorify he people, a people he foreknew forever and people that he predestined eternally to be with him forever. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 got to be one of your favorite memory verses. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not our own doing. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then Ephesians 2, 10 says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For the good works he has prepared beforehand, his decretive will, that we might walk in them, his permissive will. And Genesis 29 is just one example of a Bible, of the Bible that's filled with examples showing us that God has predetermined all human choices to serve his plan to redeem and glorify his fallen creation. And we can be and will be eternally grateful for that power. Let's pray.